welcome to the Election Ride Home for Monday, August 12th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the faint possibility of a Republican presidential primary. Biden says he misspoke about poor kids. Gillibrand urges Americans to pressure McConnell in the Senate. Yang responds to a parent at a gun safety forum. And a handy metaphor for understanding where we are in the primary race right now. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Over the weekend, Anthony Scaramucci made headlines for suggesting that the Republican Party might need a different candidate for president in 2020. You may remember Scaramucci as that guy who was Trump's press secretary for 11 days. Well, that didn't end well, though Scaramucci continued to be Trump's ally until this weekend. Anyway, in a phone interview with Axios, Scaramucci said, quote, We are now in the early episodes of Chernobyl on HBO, where the reactor is melting down and the apparatchiks are trying to figure out whether to cover it up or start the cleanup process. A couple more weeks like this, and country over party is going to require the Republicans to replace the top of the ticket in 2020. End quote. While I sincerely doubt the GOP is plotting right now to replace Trump, Scaramucci does have one good point hidden in there somewhere, which is, what's up with a Republican presidential primary in 2020? Now, that is also a listener question that I've gotten, so let's dig in to see how that is going. Right now, President Trump officially has one major challenger in the Republican presidential primary. That is former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. Weld announced his campaign on tax day, April 15th of this year. He is actively campaigning and often appears on TV interviews to discuss his challenge to the sitting president, though his odds of success are slim. In Q2, Weld raised just under $1 million compared to more than $26 million for Trump. Weld is an extreme long shot to even make a dent in Trump's re-election bid. At the moment, he's polling at anywhere from 7% to about 15% against Trump, though those numbers are fairly old given that most pollsters don't bother to ask about that race. To make things worse for Weld, most of the Republican primaries are winner-take-all, so even if Weld picks up a few percent here and there, he may end up with zero delegates at the Republican convention, and, you know, that's that. Well, here's a clip of Weld speaking about Trump at a primary candidate forum back in late July in Detroit. Listen in. Donald Trump is a raging racist, okay? He's a complete and thoroughgoing racist. Unless the Republican Party in Washington expressly, expressly rejects the racism of Donald Trump, they're going to come to be universally viewed as the party of racism in America. And a lot of them like to think that it's a political choice. But it's not a political choice. It's a moral choice. So who else might challenge Trump in a primary? Well, former Ohio Governor John Kasich would be a reasonable challenger. He won the Ohio primary in 2016, but later left that race when it was clear he couldn't win. Last year, Kasich suggested he was interested in a primary run against Trump, but lately he has walked that back. Currently an author and CNN commentator and a vocal critic of Trump, Kasich said in late May that he sees no path to the White House for him given Trump's base. While technically he says he's keeping his options open, Kasich's remarks do seem to put him out of the race. There were also rumors way back in 2017 that Kasich might run alongside former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper on what's called a unity ticket. That's a combination of different party candidates together as one political unit. 
This rumor was finally put to bed when Kasich commented on CNN, quote, the answer is no, end quote. Plus, even if the answer were yes, it's unclear exactly how combining Kasich's political capital with Hickenloopers would be enough to move the Democratic or Republican primary by all that much. You would need a much, much bigger Republican field, enough to remove the majority that Trump will get in primaries, and we just don't see that happening. So who else have we got? Well, there's Justin Amash, the lone Republican in the House who called for Trump's impeachment, and he promptly left the Republican Party after that didn't go over so well and is now an independent. While I doubt he would run as a Republican against Trump, he has left that option open in public remarks as recent as mid-July. It's more likely that if Amash runs, he would either be an independent or a libertarian candidate, since his odds against Trump in a Republican primary would be quite low, again due to the winner-take-all nature of those contests. Also, people who just left a party typically don't run for president on its ticket. Having said that, if he does run as a third-party candidate, he might have a decent shot at picking up a few percent nationally in a general election, though he would not win, but that's still an option open to him, and it's kind of an interesting one given the difficulty of defending his current House seat after leaving the Republican Party. Okay, let's keep digging around looking for some candidates. Oddly enough, Vice President Mike Pence does sometimes come up as a possible Republican nominee for 2020. If you look at prediction markets, these are essentially legal betting sites that attempt to predict the outcome of things, including elections, Pence is in the mix, and right now he's number two behind Trump, although he's 86% behind Trump for obvious reasons. If Pence somehow ends up at the top of the Republican ticket, that's not going to come through the primary process. It would be because Trump dropped out, Pence took over as president, and then promptly ran again using the power of incumbency. At that point, the competition for vice president might be pretty interesting, but if you want to spend some time on way out there speculation, just read a book or watch a movie or something. Now, there is a short list of other Republicans who are often mentioned, and you can even bet on them if you're willing to take 99 to 1 odds as possible contenders. The best bets there, and I say this with all due caution because best here means, well, slightly more than zero, I think there are three top possibilities. In that list, we should take note of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Of those, Cotton does face an election for his Senate seat in 2020, but it seems unwise to ditch that in favor of an extreme long-shot presidential race. Cotton is relatively young, so his strategy may be to simply wait. And I would say that's smart. Cruz narrowly won his Texas seat in 2018, but he's got it through 2024, so the time to make a move would be then when you don't have an incumbent president running. Haley is in a similar situation, though she's currently taking a break from politics after serving in the Trump administration. It's most likely we'll see her run in 2024. If she ran today, the likely effect would be to tick off a whole bunch of Republican voters and potentially hurting her odds in a 2024 primary. So that's where that stands. It seems incredibly unlikely that there will be a serious Republican presidential primary for the 2020 cycle, and the current frontrunner against Trump, Bill Weld, is polling so far behind that I don't see him picking up any states. Now, if, for whatever reason, Trump does not in fact run in 2020, then yeah, we're facing a whole different picture. But given the timescale here, given the 15 months from the general election, I would not bet on it. And given that you can literally bet on it, I recommend that you don't. Mm -hmm. 
Look, it's Monday, you're stressed out, you're back at work, you're probably heading home right now, and if you're anything like me, it is not just work that is bugging you. It's politics, maybe it's family stuff, it's whatever you've got to deal with in your day-to-day life. Well, listen up. I have been using an app called Simple Habit to help me deal with stress, help me recover when I'm feeling cranky or nervous, and just to get me back on target when I drift. We all drift, and Simple Habit truly helps. It's a meditation app, but don't let that scare you. Meditation is another word for an organized way to calm yourself. And I think we all need that right now, right? Simple Habit is free to use. There are hundreds of sessions right in there for free, but there are thousands more in there, many of them on super specific things like, say, needing to calm down when you're about to get on a plane or give a speech or go into a big meeting. I have personally benefited from this app, and so has my wife. We are using it every day. And this is not me reciting somebody else's script. This is me saying, yeah, Simple Habit is actually really good and it is worth your time. I want you to go to simplehabit.com slash ride. The first 50 listeners who sign up for a paid plan there get 30% off. Now you got to use that link. It's the first link in the show notes. Again, that is simplehabit.com slash ride. They get the special offer and let them know you came from this show. Join me and my family in enjoying the calmness that Simple Habit can bring. So one last time, the first 50 listeners who go to simplehabit.com slash ride are going to get 30% off. Start today, especially if Monday is really bugging you. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. On Saturday, former Vice President Joe Biden commented on that story about his comments last week. He had been notably silent about this whole thing for a few days, but, you know, a horde of reporters following you around and yelling at you can eventually solicit a response. In an article for Politico, David Siders gives us the details. Quote, Look, I misspoke, Biden told reporters at a gun violence forum in Iowa. I meant to say wealthy. I've said it 15 times. On the spot, I explained it. At that very second, I explained it. And so, the fact of the matter is, I don't think anybody thinks that I meant anything other than what I said I meant. Biden's remarks came after the former vice president said during an event in Iowa on Thursday, poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Then quickly added, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. That same day, Biden flubbed a line at the Iowa State Fair, providing ammunition for President Donald Trump's supporters to jeer him on social media when he said, we choose truth over facts. And on Saturday, Biden made yet another gaffe telling reporters that kids from Parkland came up to see me when I was vice president. Biden did meet with students following the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, but that shooting and the subsequent meeting occurred in 2018, long after Biden left office. End quote. So, what you need to know right now about this whole Biden thing is that we're in the midst of a media narrative that is laser-focused on Biden. And what I mean by that is Biden made a very notable gaffe, and also a variety of other mini-gaffes right around the same time, and that fuels anybody, whether it's a reporter or the opposition party or whomever, to go ahead and essentially list out the mistakes and connect the dots. 
That's what creates a narrative, which then further drives the news. And now any new puzzle piece, any new mistake or misstatement or gaffe or however you want to put it, gets slotted into this narrative. Now, to be frank, we've had this narrative since the beginning of Biden's candidacy and even before it. But the intensity is cranking up as Biden pushes into Iowa and is followed by a zillion TV cameras. So be aware, this Biden story is nowhere near over, and I would suggest it is really just beginning. Over the weekend in Iowa, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand made an appearance at a candidate forum in Des Moines on the topic of gun violence. It was sponsored by Moms Demand Action, as well as Every Town for Gun Safety, and it's leading up to a rally this coming weekend. Moms Demand Action is gearing up for a so-called recess rally on August 17th and 18th to pressure Senator Mitch McConnell to call the Senate back from recess to vote on those two gun safety bills already passed by the House that we discussed several times last week. So here's a clip from Gillibrand at that event. Listen in. If every one of you spends the next four weeks speaking out, using social media to be heard, tweeting at Mitch McConnell saying, Mitch, call the vote. Mitch, call the vote. He could call us back into Congress today. We could pass universal background checks today. We could ban assault weapons. We could ban large magazines. We could have a federal anti-trafficking law today. So it's your voices that matter. So keep speaking up. Do not be silent. Just keep demanding it. I promise you, your voices matter. It's the only time it's ever worked in our entire history. It's when regular people like you demand it. Now, at that same event, Andrew Yang also gave a statement, and his was far more emotional. This one's a little bit longer at about three minutes, and I want to caution you, if you're driving or otherwise occupied, there is some raw emotion on display coming up in about 30 seconds. So, you know, that's gonna happen. I think the audio here speaks mostly for itself, but I do want to note that in the video, which is linked in the show notes, Yang is clearly distressed from the very beginning. He reaches for a glass of water while the question is being asked in a move that I recognize as a way to stop yourself from crying. It doesn't work, and his tears are visible throughout this clip. It's rare that we see this level of emotional display from any presidential candidate, particularly this emotion, this sense of empathy, vulnerability, and, and shared loss. I would call it essentially grief. We have sometimes seen that from Joe Biden, who has grief over the death of his son, and we have seen that on the campaign trail. But for today, we're talking about Yang. So look, I've seen plenty of candidates be fine with expressing anger about this issue, but to see a candidate responding like this, expressing grief in such a raw way, is notable. He also manages to express a policy proposal despite his grief, which is the idea of a so-called personalized gun. Those are weapons equipped with a technological solution that should prevent them from being fired by anyone other than a specific person. This could be a fingerprint sensor, it could be a grip strength sensor, or some kind of combination, or something else. There's a lot of ways to do this, but Yang is offering here a technological solution as a kind of middle ground to reduce certain kinds of gun-related tragedies. Alright, I don't love playing clips about gun violence, but Yang's emotional and honest reaction to this question is something special, and I think you should hear it. Listen in, and the questioner, a mother in the crowd, speaks first. My beautiful four-year-old daughter, Dela, was struck by a stray bullet March 2011. 
My son, my daughter's twin brother, witnessed what happened that day. She died two days later. Firearms are the second leading cause of death for children and teenagers in the U.S., but 4.6 million American children live in homes with at least one gun that is loaded and unlocked, and hundreds of them gain access to a gun and unintentionally shoot themselves or someone else every year. As president, how would you address unintentional shootings by children? Thank you for that. Can I give you a hug? Is that be appropriate? <laughs> I have a six and three-year-old boy, as I'm imagining. <laughs> I was imagining it was one of them that got shot and the other saw it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> The, the biggest downside of running for president for me has been that I don't get to see my family very much. So I get pictures, I FaceTime, I see pictures of my boys and just that scene that she described, I'm sorry, it's like very, very affecting. You're right that when there's a gun in the household, you're more likely to have a child get shot or the owner get shot than to kill, let's say, an intruder into the house. Those are just numbers. Um, those are just the facts. So one of the things we can do, and it's very hard to get into Americans' houses where all of these guns are, uh, but if we can convince Americans that personalized guns are a good idea, then again, if you, the child gets a hold of the gun, then they can't do anything with it. Then it just becomes a very heavy, expensive prop. Uh, and that's something that we can push. One of my proposals is to actually help gun owners upgrade their guns to personalized guns free of charge. Because if we can do that, then again, if you're a gun owner, and gun owners are parents, gun owners understand that, you know, and some of them are concerned. So if you say, hey, we'll upgrade your uh, guns for free, when we can do that, like you can upgrade the guns for free, and that would help make kids safer in our homes. I'm so sorry you um, had to, uh, that, that story should not be possible. Uh, I'm so sorry. Last up today, this is a quick one. In a Politico story last week, Democratic strategist Jeff Link gave us a very helpful metaphor for understanding where we are right now in the Democratic primary season. So right now, the Iowa State Fair is kind of topping the news, but you may be asking, okay, fine, but where are we, right? Like, in the overall timescale of this whole thing, where is today relative to the end point? Is it early? Is it late? What is the deal with the primaries? To make things more confusing, we don't have a debate this month. We do have a whole bunch of upcoming debates, but we're not even sure when those will happen after the one in September. So it is helpful to have somebody give us a sports metaphor to figure out the big picture. Reading here from Politico, this is the end of a story by Natasha Karecki and Christopher Cotalago, and here they are quoting Jeff Link. Quote, The state fair is like halftime. 
we've had the first two quarters of the game, we have the third and fourth quarters to play still. If you're a fan of the NBA, nothing happens until the fourth quarter, he said. I wouldn't be satisfied being ahead at halftime, end quote. So if you are a basketball fan, I hope that makes sense to you. Right now, as we spent all of last week discussing, the polls essentially show five top-tier candidates with three, Biden, Sanders, and Warren, at the very top. But it's halftime right now, so there's still a bunch of time on the clock here, especially for people who are already on the board and have some money. In other words, anybody who makes this next debate is still very much in the game, even if their only winning strategy involves a series of three-pointers. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Again, I want to welcome those of you coming from the This American Life podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the show. It comes out every Monday through Friday. For our longtime listeners, I spent the weekend trying to clean up a spider mite infestation in the indoor portion of the yarden. Now look, this is a long and losing fight, but I'm trying. So far, the mites have managed to eat most of our African violets. Fortunately, I've got a cloning project underway, no kidding, where I'm trying to clone a 19-year-old violet that I bought at a grocery store the day I moved to Portland. So the potential clones are sitting and watching me right now under their little glass domes, and I will keep you posted if they actually sprout. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.